This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Some of the highest performing charter schools in the United States have been criticized for their rote learning approach to elementary education. Teachers are expected to follow definite procedures rather than use their own imagination and creativity inside the classroom. School teachers often don't have tenure and teacher turnover is high. Can this form of education really be better than the traditional approach, which allows every teacher to be free to communicate the subject matter in the way that seems best for them? And they are protected by all kinds of civil service and union negotiated protections. Or is it possible that education can be standardized? That's the question that Michael Kramer, a Nobel Prize winning economist at the University of Chicago, and his colleagues pose in their recently released research on schools operated by Bridge International in several sub Saharan Africa countries. A for-profit company, and that's very important to understand, a for-profit company, Bridge, is serving over hundreds of thousands of students in Africa, and its approach could not be more different from the one usually taken by public schools in the United States. In the program that Kramer and his team studied in Kenya, teachers were paid much less than the typical public school teacher. Procedures for instruction were detailed and precise teachers were expected to follow guidelines. They had no tenure or seniority rights, very different system of education. To discuss the bridge schools, I'm pleased to have Michael Kramer with me on the education exchange today. So Michael, before we dig into Bridges International and your uh, randomized field trial, would you just sort of go over what the education system is like in Kenya? Uh, is it, uh, you know, the public school system? Uh, it's a universal system, I'm, I'm sure, but what's it like? You taught there, so I know you know what it's like on the ground. Right, um, I, I taught in a public school in Kenya um, but many, many years ago, so I may be a little bit out of date, but I can tell you a little bit about, about my experience. Um, one, one piece of background is that education's highly valued in Kenya. Uh, parents care about it a lot. Students care about it a lot. Um, there's, um, when I taught in Kenya, uh, public, even at public schools, children or the families had to pay. And um, there's, um, there's, there's been a lot, and not everybody was going to pr even primary school. Um, but in Kenya, as in much of Africa and many low and middle income countries more generally, there's been a tremendous expansion of access to education. Um, I think this is partly related to the introduction of multi-party democracy in Kenya. Uh, you know, the politicians with multi-party democracy wanted to appeal to voters. And one way to do that was to offer free primary education. Uh, secondary school uh, was quite expensive then, but there's also been process and uh, been progress in bringing down the cost of, of secondary education. So now, um, now that's brought a tremendous expansion of the school system uh, because more and more kids can afford to go to education. Um, the, I think while there's been a lot of progress in, in Kenya and many other uh, low, low and middle income countries in access to education, there are still huge challenges in learning levels. 
Um, so in international comparisons, low-income countries, uh, middle-income countries um, um, tend to score much lower on these international, uh, internationally comparable tests than, high, than children in higher-income countries. And um, you know, some, the results, the differences are, are often quite dramatic. Uh, Kenya does relatively well, with, does well, in fact, within Africa, but in uh, this general pattern of, of lower scores for children in lower-income and middle-income countries is, uh, is very pronounced. Well, I think there's also been a challenge in many countries in the developing world than actually creating the administrative structure for the delivery of services. So that there's oftentimes teachers who are maybe living away from the villages where many people are living and children are needing to go to school, uh, but the teachers like to live in the cities, they're civil servants, they have high salaries relative to others, but they you know, they don't necessarily get to the schoolhouse every day. So, and the, the, the administrative structure to make sure that they do get there just isn't uh, in place. That's what I have read elsewhere. And I would assume that problem exists in Kenya as well. So I was involved in a survey in several countries, again, a while ago. Um, and um, what we found was that, and uh, I'll give you the example of India, um, teachers were absent from the school entirely about a quarter of the time when we when our survey teams visited, and teachers were absent from their classroom an additional quarter of the time. So teachers were only in the school and teaching about half the time. Now that survey didn't cover Kenya. Um, others have subsequently done done surveys in in Kenya. So I think in Kenya, uh, in a similar survey, they found teachers were absent. From from class during 47% of unannounced visits. That's, uh, um, so that's, I think, a study by Bold et al. and uh, Martin Pim and Pimhatsik. But that gives you a sense that, yes, you're right, that teacher absence uh, is an important problem. And I, you mentioned the, the difficulties in establishing the structures. In most, um, in most countries in the world, um, well, let me say in most low and middle income countries, including Kenya, um, the, um, it's not a system, the very decentralized system we have in the US with lots of different school districts. Rather, it's a single national ministry of education that, um, that holds the power. And, um, and, you know, it can be difficult to um, to set up these structures that actually translate into um, what what the people at the top of the ministry are trying to achieve happening at, at the, on, on the ground. Well, now could we switch uh, uh, kind of the, the topic a bit and talk about Bridges, Bridges International. How does this, this is a for-profit company, uh, but they have a very uh, elaborate plan as to how they're going to deliver education. So what's their policy? What is their plan? How do they, how do they try to reach the population that they're educating? Right. Well, so I think that in general, there's some degree of standardization in most education systems. There's a curriculum, there are textbooks, but Bridge takes this, this standardization approach and 
implements it much more deeply and much more broadly than is typical, um, to, uh, as you said in your introduction. So first, let me explain what I mean by they implement it much more deeply. There are very detailed lesson plans that are distributed to the teachers through tablet computers. And they have word-by-word -word instructions of, to the teachers, not just what to say, what to write on the blackboard, how to, uh, what gestures to make, um, when to look around the room at the teacher, at the students. Um, there are, um, there, 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 these are not just about the uh, pedagogical content, but also about how to get the attention of pupils if they're starting to, to if their attention's starting to wander. Um, that's, that's, that's an example of the, the depth of what they do. There might be lesson guides in other systems, um, but it's definitely a standardized lesson guide rather than each teacher developing their own. Second, it's why as I say it's broader. It's not just the material given to the teacher. It's a whole range of other activities that I think form a coherent whole, coherent system. You know, whether you like it or not, and I think there's plenty of room for for debate about that. Um, but the so, for example, the um, the school heads are given very detailed procedures to follow to observe the teachers. And that will happen you know, on a very high frequency, something that I think happens much less frequently in government schools. The, the school heads will go and observe, and they will have a form to fill out. Again, that's done electronically. All of this uh, is sent, um, is recorded and, and transmitted to the, to the company uh, headquarters. Um, then they're given instructions on exactly how to provide feedback to the teacher, uh, depending on how the teacher is doing on a, on a, on, in, on a prescribed list of, uh, of checklist of things the teacher is supposed to do. They would say, um, they would say, um, um, the, uh, they would say, um, uh, for example, give some praise and then raise this issue that's needed for where improvement is needed, then come back later, check and see if they've improved. Um, um, all of this is specified in great detail. And then just to, and you can see that there's a certain amount of uh, what economists call complementarity uh, between these two, two aspects. If what the teacher is supposed to do is very clearly articulated, then when the head teacher is, um, goes to visit, they can say, did the teacher follow this page in the lesson guide that they're supposed to follow? Um, but it even goes beyond these two elements. So, for example, the, there's detailed instructions for the construction of every school, and they're all you know, pretty much identical. I mean, it's modular, so you can expand the school more if there's more pupils. Um, um, there's the financial management. These are private schools. They charge fees. Um, and there, I didn't. I talked about the public system in Kenya. There's a pretty big uh, private system as well. Um, but everything is, is standardized and is done through. Um, so, for example, the the school heads never have a handle cash. Everything's done through mobile money, which is actually um, you know there there are various ways in which lower income countries are um, leapfrogging higher income countries. You know, one was. You know, they went straight to mobile phones. You don't get many uh, uh, regular phones being used. 
Um, another is that you know, Kenya uses mobile money much more than the U.S. does, and much has been doing so for a while. So all the all the financial transactions are done with mobile money. That makes it easy to, for the company to have a record of all of this. Um, I think part of the idea is to free up the time of the school head to monitor what the what the teachers are doing and give feedback to the teachers. So this is all really fascinating. Now, I know you did, your study is very carefully designed and I don't want you to go into all the details of how you do your sample because that's very complicated. But but just in general, what was your strategy for studying whether or not this standardized approach to teaching and learning is actually effective? Well, first, let me let me note that um, I'm just one of the co-authors on the study. Uh, uh, Guthrie Gray Loeb, um, Anthony Keats, uh, Isaac Mbiti, and Owen Osher are the other uh, co-authors. Um, and you know, the basic strategy is and um, is to bridge. Had a there was a donor who paid scholarships for. Uh, kids to go to go to bridge schools for two years, and they did this after a teacher strike in Kenya, and I think that was you know part of what motivated them in the public schools. Um, and there were roughly twenty five thousand kids who applied for these scholarships. Only about ten thousand scholarships were available, so they had a, a lottery to allocate um, to allocate the places. And our basic strategy was to compare the winners of the lottery to the losers of the lottery and, um, and then use that to get sample. Because this was a lottery, um, the, sample, the sample should be pretty comparable. Obviously, the parents who send their kids to bridge are probably different than the parents who send their kids to public schools um, in all sorts of ways. But by looking at, by taking advantage of the lottery, we were able to get comparable groups. I should say, let me just note a limitation of the of this study. You know, we were able to get outcomes on the kids in terms of learning levels, and maybe we got a bit, a few bits of evidence on other issues. But their bridge is very controversial, and um, you know, there's contra- there's all sorts of controversies about um, about safety in schools, for example, about uh, about the um, working conditions for teachers. You know. We, we, we have provide only limited evidence on that. Really, what we focused on was uh, the impact on on learning. Um, but I don't want to dismiss those other questions. You know, that's sort of different people of different. That's sort of a values question, which uh, you know everybody will have their own opinion on. But what we can shed light on is the um, is is really the impact on on learning. Well, we can we can talk about some of these issues that have come up in all the controversies, but I, let's first talk about the academic side. Did, are, are, is did you find then that the students more is from this structured, standardized approach uh, than if they had not been able to uh, get a scholarship and go to the school? Yeah, so we found really dramatic effects on learning. You know, I've been involved uh, in a lot of studies of education, and you know, as as we all know, sometimes there's no effect. Uh, sometimes the effects are there, but pretty modest. Um, these were very large impacts. So what we estimate, and I'll skip over some of the statistics, but what we estimate is that 
going to bridge for two years leads to the equivalent of 2.89 years of education uh, or of learning that uh, students would get from, from going to the alternative schools, which is you know, typically a public school. Um, so you, know, you go to school for two years, you learn as much as you would have learned in 2.89 years. Uh, that's at the primary level. So it's almost 50% more if you think about it. It's for, you learn three years just about for every two that you're actually there. That's a, that's a pretty big difference. Uh, yeah, and it's an even larger effect at the pre-primary level. So, you know, we, we looked, it's, a, it's about, you get about a year and a half extra after two years. So you learn what, what, uh, what other kids would learn in, in three and a half years, you learn in two years. That's at the, at the pre-primary level. That, that's a big effect. But then, you know, the Kenya schools, as we have just discussed, are probably not the greatest schools uh, out there. And so is this big effect partly due to the quality of the, you know, the alternative? So, you know, if the, if the schools in Kenya were operating at a higher level of performance, then you probably wouldn't get this big a difference. So can you comment on that a bit? Yeah. Um, well, let me start out by just saying the, the, um, the standard researcher thing to say, which is, um, we you know we examined Kenya. We don't have evidence from uh, other places. Um, I will note that, and and you're probably much more expert on this than me. There is a a literature, a quite large literature on direct instruction, and there's certainly some resemblance between what Bridge is doing and direct instruction, and. Um, my understanding, my limited understanding, is that some of the results on direct instruction are quite positive in general, including in, in higher income countries. Um, so I don't, I don't think they're as dramatic as these, but, uh, but they're, 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 they're positive. Um, but I, I can't um, disagree with your basic point that um, you know, we we know about a particular context. We don't know about the impact in other contexts. And certainly it's a, it's a plausible hypothesis that if you have you know, a really excellent school system that, um, that teachers could do, you know, there might be gains from having teachers being able to tailor um, instruction to the specific circumstances of their class and to their uh, specific circumstances, and um, that perhaps the standardized system wouldn't do as well. So that that's a, I think, an open question, but uh, an important question. Well, one of the things about bridges is they tend to uh, hire teachers uh, regardless of whether they have a diploma that I mean a certificate that they have been trained to become a teacher, and they tend to pay low salaries. They tend to have uh, fairly high turnover, as I recall. I think they can dismiss teachers. So maybe these are the key variables, not the standardized instruction, but the fact that you've got a very flexible, uh, you've got a workforce, which if somebody is not working out, you can, you can make some changes in your, in your staffing. And it's the ability to really recruit and remove teachers which is very hard to do in a civil service or a collective bargaining situation. You know, if you try to do that in the United States, you'd be in trouble very quickly. So 
maybe that's the that's the key to what's going on here at Bridges. Let me start by by um, saying a little bit more about what the system is, and then you know venture into the territory of interpretation, uh, but with a you know very gingerly into that territory. Um, so first, as you as you note, um, Bridge um, Bridge hires teachers with very different qualifications. Now, I, I would somewhat interpret that a bit through the lens of the standardization as well. Um, one of the, th you know, if we th I'm thinking as an economist about this process that's taking place in many different industries. Um, you know, you think about this in Henry Ford, developing standardized productions of automobiles, replacing artisanal production with this. You can think about um, some high skill sectors, you know, pilots have checklists. They're even a, ver a very highly skilled pilot goes through a checklist before they before they take off. Um, um, you can think about uh, you know McDonald's. You know, there had been you know they have they have uh, rules for everything they do. Well, doctors and protocols for operations. Now doctors and protocols. So there are some. Yes. So there are some cases like pilots or doctors where you're still gonna hire a really qualified pilot or doctor, and you're gonna pay them high wages, the, their, whatever the standard wages are, and for pilots and doctors, those are pretty good wages or salaries. Um, but there are many other cases, let's take the McDonald's example, where you know, previously there'd be a bunch of, of diners and the workers would be experienced, and you know, then McDonald's came in, a lot of diners shut down, and McDonald's has the system of where everything can be reduced to a formula. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. And then that allows them to hire uh, lower lo workers with less education and less, on, less experience. So then, you know, then they can pay higher, lower, they, then they can pay lower wages. And then they can, um, they can afford more turnover. Now, I don't want to attribute you know, there's a, I don't want to attribute any motives to anybody because we don't have any evidence on that. Um, but I think this basic choice of do you hire workers, do you have standardization while also having workers of the same skills were there before, same education experience, or as in the pilot or doctor case, or do you go with the, um, the, um, the less educated, less experienced workers. That's sort of a fundamental choice. And interestingly, there's been an evolution of bridge over time. Our, um, so our study was of their private school model. In their private school model, they, they hired teachers with just secondary school education. Many, most of their teachers just had, at the time we studied them, most of their teachers had just secondary school education. Now they've really transitioned in two ways. First, you know, the Kenyan government has sort of imposed um, more requirements on them over time, and they've, they're hiring more educated workers. You know, the standard teacher in a public school has been to secondary school, but they've also had post-secondary education, been to a teacher training college and, and have a degree from there. Um, the, so, so that's, you know, one small shift. But the much bigger shift is they've really changed their business model. And I think... You know, who knows what all the reasons are, are for that? I don't have access to their financial data, their, their, uh, their internal deliberations. But um, you know, the, it was, as, as we've discussed, it was a very controversial model. They, got, they, they, they attracted a lot of opposition. Um, I think the 
uh, both civil society and labor activists, you know, waged a, really a, um, uh, I mean, you're the political scientist, not me, but I think they waged a, a very successful campaign uh, in a lot of ways. And Bridge, you know, Bridge has, there were about 400 schools serving about 100,000 students at the time of our study. They've closed down, you know, about 300, almost 300 of those schools, not, not quite 300 of them. And they've switched, but that doesn't mean that the organization is smaller. They've actually totally changed their business strategy. They're now working primarily supplying, um, supplying you know, their, their approach, their standardized lesson uh, plans, their technology um, to the public sector. So they, they now serve nine, and it's, they're now operate, their parent company is called New Globe, and these activities are done by, by New Globe, uh, whereas the private school subsidiary was, uh, was Bridge. Um, so, or is Bridge. Um, so, but, you know, they're overwhelmingly working with public schools. And there, the teachers are, the teachers have all the civil service protection that they would normally have, and they have the training and the experience that uh, would be typical for public school teachers in, in low, and, low and middle income countries, which is where they well, Is there any evidence that this model works when you sort of switch to state-run schools and you may have some control over it, but you're going to be subject to a lot of regulations. Do they have the flexibility to put in their entire model here that they did uh, at the time of your investigation? I think that's a huge, I think, you know, what is an open question is, and I think that's a very important question to answer, what is the impact of this public school model? You know, you could tell the story either way. Um, so, you know, one story would be, that these teachers have more education, they have more experience. Clearly, they're going to do even better with this model than they, you know, students would do even better with this model than they did before. Now, another story would be, well, you know, New Globe, um, it, it, the parent company, um, doesn't have the authority to hire, fire teachers. They don't have the authority to transfer teachers. Um, that authority is very important and that they won't get the same results. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't, we didn't do that study. I think it's very important that, that the impact of this, um, of this public sector model uh, be, be studied. Yes, no, I think so. Because I think to me, that's the key question about your study, which I think is marvelously well designed and captures the fact that the Bridges program was effective in Kenya. But if you sort of say there were two elements to it, one of them was the standardization of the way in which uh, the curriculum was to be presented to the students. And the other was the flexibility that they had in terms of recruiting and staffing and organizing their school, which was the really important factor that drove the uh, effects that you observed. Well, let me, let me, I don't think we have a you know, definitive answer to that, but let me note the evidence as I, as I would interpret it. Um, we have a much smaller sample of students who we think, who, had, who at the outset of the program told us that if they didn't go to Bridge, if they didn't win a scholarship, they would go to another private school. So about, I think, 13, 15%, something like that of kids in Kenya go to private schools. And so 
we can try to do some comparisons using that data um, and the rest of our sample, sort of combining everything, to try to tease out the effect of bridge versus private schools. Now, you know, that's harder, smaller sample, more statistical assumptions required, um, but our best estimate suggests quite big gains relative to uh, private schools as well. Um, so now the private schools, they also, uh, they typically hire you know, much more uh, educated teachers than Bridge does, but they, they have pretty complete latitude in terms of hiring or firing or telling them what to do. So my guess is that there's an independent effect of this um, standardization. And I'm also basing this in part on you know, other studies in Kenya, and elsewhere, which don't suggest that the difference between private schools and public schools is nearly as big. Uh, you know, sometimes they find something, sometimes they don't find much, but they don't find things on the massive scale as we found from bridge versus, pretty clearly bridge versus public schools, and you know, subject to some caveats, bridge versus these, these private schools, other private schools. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that the World Bank stopped funding or their, their investment organizations stopped funding uh, bridges because they came under a lot of pressure from US Congress and from various uh, international organizations and uh, labor unions and so forth. Um, so is it the case that these international organizations, are they really going to be, are they really, can we rely upon them to improve the education of third world countries in the way that we have for so many years? Or are they now a stumbling block? So, well, first, let me return to sort of a larger social science perspective on standardization, which is, you know, in many cases, standardization leads to a lot of, particularly when it's used to hire less educated workers at lower wages, um, and there's a lot of social conflict involved. And really, and you know, how you look at that, I think depends in part on your, you know, it depends partly on the evidence. It also depends partly on your overall political orientation. So some people would argue that this is a, a big obstacle um, to, to progress. Um, other people would argue that sometimes the social conflict leads to, well, let me give you an example. You know, I talked about Ford Motors earlier. Well, obviously Ford Motors was, you know, there was a wave of, you know, in the 30s, there's a wave of strikes and lockouts, eventual passage of the National Labor Relations Act, and this adoption of this collective bargaining system um, and, you know, some people will say that was a great thing. The technology still got adopted. We had efficient, you know, automobile production, and, but workers were better treated under this. Other people would argue that, you know, the unions had a, you know, a negative effect. Um, I, I, I think in Bridge, what, we're, and the, um, what we've seen is a movement towards, you know, we're actually in seen something somewhat analogous, and then they're moving away from the private school model to a model in which the, you know, the, the, the 
teachers are enjoying um, civil service protection and uh, and and higher wages and high, you know and and now is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, mostly I would say I'm an economist. I'll leave that to the philosophers. Um, I guess I would also say we could um, we could um, we could try to collect data on the impact on learning, and I think that would be I think that's very important to do. Um, so. Um, and yeah, I, I think that would be my, in terms of the international organization, sorry, let me come back to your, your uh, original question. I think my own opinion, I've had opportunities to work with, um, with um, you know, on a variety of different types of education uh, issues. And you know, my own view is that it's very easy to criticize international organizations, and I don't want to claim they're perfect, but I think they're. I I, th I actually think they're making a lot of doing a lot of very useful things. You know, I had worked on something that is, you know, not nearly as politically controversial as this, but just treating kids for worms. So worms used to be a big problem in the U.S. South. Um, these are hookworm, whipworm. They sort of enter your body. They're consuming a lot of nutrients. Um, they're a big problem, and, and like a billion people worldwide are exposed to this. People in the U.S. are buying dewormers for their cats and dogs, or I think cats, certainly dogs, and uh, you know, farmers are feeding, feeding massive quantities of deworming medicine to livestock to help their livestock gain weight. Gain weight. They're really cheap. But millions of human beings, hundreds of millions, billions of human beings who need these medicines are not getting them. And you know, I did an earlier study in Kenya, found very big gains from kids getting this this medicine, and um, and you know the the World Bank played an important role in helping get that message uh, from from the results that we had to the Kenyan government, and played a role in sort of co-financing a program like this with the, with the Kenyan government, and you know since then. India has adopted similar programs, uh, initially in part with World Bank money, but you know, overwhelmingly now with their, their own resources. Um, and um, you know, really overwhelmingly, it's, it's the government of India program now. And you know, hundreds of millions of kids are getting, uh, every year, are getting treated. So that's just one example. You know, it's not nearly as politically controversial as this one, but I think it's making a big difference to a lot of people. Well, what makes education so controversial is that it's being provided by the government itself in so many parts of the world. And therefore, they don't want to see the competition. They don't like to see a private company. It's like if the United States government had been producing cars and Ford came along, would Ford have been able to have? Uh, it's one thing to regulate Ford until it has to do this and that. It's another thing to say, we can't have Ford. And, but that's exactly what's been happening with the World Bank and the pressure that's been brought upon it by the United States Congress. They're saying, you can't have bridges. You can't have for-profit companies running schools in most of the world. And that's, or the places in the world where it's most desperately needed. And, this, and then you wonder, you know, whether or not this, it, whether or not we have the right strategy uh, today for really solving the human capital problem that's a massive problem worldwide. Well, so what, you know, what the, 
my understanding of the World Bank policy, which they just reaffirmed, um, is that they're not going, they've put a freeze on, and this was very much in response to um, the complaints of the, of the of activists, civil society organizations, and labor unions, as you, as you mentioned. They said, we're going to freeze uh, investment in private K through 12 education. Now, um, that's a that's a debatable proposition, and and but I that's not the same as saying we think that the K through twelve education should be uh, should be you know we should ban private K through twelve uh, education. I don't think the World Bank is taking that position, and you know there is a, a robust um, private sector in Kenya, but also in many countries, and you know look. Uh, many people would take this as, and I'm, I'm not, and I, I think there's a point there, uh, many people would take the huge growth of the private sector in low and middle income countries in education as a sign that the public sector is not, is not providing high quality because these are very poor people, um, you know, uh, um, people who have, you know, who are living in houses with dirt floors and mud walls um, that are, are paying for their kids to get private education and um, through, you know, um, and, you know, while public education is free. And that I, I, I would agree with you that um, that suggests that there's a lot of room for improvement in, in public education. And I think I, I would agree with you as well that it, it makes sense to... Um, to allow the private sector to exist, um, I, I, um, I, I just wanted to, you know, be clear that the World Bank isn't saying, you know, we think countries should shut down private education. They're just saying we're not going to invest in it ourselves. And yeah, that's a that's a legitimate topic for debate. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for this absolutely uh, fascinating review of the important work that you've done on. Uh, on the uh, effort to standardize the learning process in Kenya uh, by the Bridges International Organization. Uh, I think uh, the quality of the work speaks for itself and uh, thank you and your colleagues for doing uh, such an exceptional job. And thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. It was a pleasure. Great to talk. I have been speaking with Michael Kramer. He and his colleagues are authors of a new study of Bridges International. The full citation is on the website. It's a for-profit organization that is operating schools that uh, have been found to be very effective in the Kenyan situation. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.